Welcome to the Story Grid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This show is dedicated to helping you become a better editor, following the Story Grid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years of experience. My name is Jari Bolander, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Joining me shortly are four of my fellow certified Story Grid editors, Kim Kessler, Leslie Watts, Valerie Francis, and Anne Hawley. Each week, we watch a movie from one of the 12 content genres and complete a Global Fool's Cap worksheet, then discuss it using the six core questions. This week, we're analyzing the 2007 movie Hot Fuzz, screenplay by Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg, and directed by Edgar Wright. Here's a synopsis adopted from Wikipedia. And just so you know, spoiler alert, um, happening, so... Don't, uh, <laughs> if you don't want to get spoiler, don't listen. <laughs> Police Constable Nicholas Angel, Simon Pegg, a high-achieving member of the Metropolitan Police Service, is transferred to the village of Sanford, Gloucestershire, for making his colleagues look bad by comparison. Sanford is a crime-free idol, a regular winner of the Village of the Year Awards, watching, watched over by the Neighborhood Watch Alliance, the NWA. To Angel's frustration, the local police service is lazy and complacent. His new partner is Danny Butterman, Nick, played by Nick Frost, son of Inspector Frank Butterman, who is constantly discussing his love of action and buddy cop films. After a local theater performance of Romeo and Juliet, the actors in the lead's roles, suspected of engaging in an affair, are murdered by a cloaked figure. Angel suspects foul play, but everyone, off, everyone else passes it off as an accident. When Angel is called to resolve a neighborhood dispute, he discovers a stash of unlicensed firearms in an old naval mine in an elderly man's shed. Angel confiscates the stash in the police department's evidence room. Drinking in the village pub, Danny and Angel meet Simon Skinner, manager of the local supermarket, and George Merchant, a wealthy drunkard who makes his fortune selling kitchen goods. Danny takes Angel home, and the two binge-watch action movies. That evening, an unseen figure causes a gas explosion that destroys Merchant's mansion, killing him. The incident is deemed an accident, and Angel is ridiculed for believing otherwise. At the local fair, Tim Messenger, editor of the Sanford Citizen, approaches Angel, claiming to have information regarding Merchant. A robed figure topples a, a severed church spire onto Messenger, killing him. Angel persuades Frank that the incident was murder and discovers a link between the victims and the Sanford citizen. Leslie Tiller, the, the village florist, tells Angel she intends to sell her shop and move to the city. While Angel is distracted, Tiller is murdered by a cloaked figure. Angel gives chase but loses the killer. Angel accuses Skinner of the murders, but his alibi is backed up by video footage. Angel theorizes there may be multiple killers, but Frank shoots down the idea. As Angel returns home, he's attacked by Michael Armstrong, one of Skinner's supermarket employees. Angel subdues Armstrong and follows clues that lead him to a secret NWA meeting. Angel confronts the NWA and tries to arrest them. The group reveals that they killed residents who threatened Stanford's chance of winning Village of the Year award. After Frank reveals himself as one of them, Angel flees and discovers the bodies of NWA's many victims. As the NWA corners Angel, Danny appears and fakes Angel's murder. Pretending to dispose of the body, Danny helps Angel escape the NWA. He begs him to leave the village for his own safety. At a petrol station, Angel is inspired by the movie he watched with Danny and returns to Sanford. 
He arms himself with the confiscated guns and reunites with Danny. The pair engage in shootouts with the NWA and besiege the supermarket with the rest of the police, forcing Skinner to flee, the, flee with Inspector Butterman. After a car chase that ends in the model village of Sanford itself, Skinner and Frank are arrested. Angel's former superiors beg to re- him to return to London as the crime rates have risen in his absence, but Angel remains in Sanford. As officers process the paperwork, Tom Weaver, the last NWA member, attempts to kill Angel. Danny takes a bullet for Angel, and in the process, Weaver accidentally activates the confiscated naval mine, destroying the station and killing him. One year later, Angel and Danny are in charge of Sanford Police as inspector and sergeant, respectfully. So uh, this is a really fun movie to watch, and uh, we actually had a hard time pinning down exactly what genre this was. So, um, Kim, why don't you start off the discussion on uh, what's the global genre? Okay, so it's funny because I picked this movie for us thinking it was going to be a crime story, and we needed one of those for our, you know, for we're trying to hit the 12 genres. And then I watched it a few weeks ago, and I was really pulled in by the internal arc of the story. And I was like, Oh, maybe it's internal. And then I watched it again this weekend and I was like, I don't know what this thing is. And so, um, so what I had to do was I dug into my cheat sheets, um, which Sean so graciously gave to us, um, and used that to kind of try to really pin down what, what I really thought that this was. Um, and it helped also looking to see, um, what Leslie was calling it and also what Valerie was calling it in our, in our group notes. And so ultimately I landed on a global genre of thriller, um, the serial killer. And what's tricky about this is since the thriller is a combination of action and horror um, and the crime story, you know, it makes it really does fit into a lot of genres and it really, it really will hold up to the test. Like if you look at the obligatory scenes of an action story, um, you really, it will, it will meet them. Um, and so what I ended up doing when we get to obligatory scenes, we'll talk about it is just making sure that it also fits the obligatory scenes of a thriller. Um, and that's kind of where I, I landed on that one. Um, so externally I'm saying it's a thriller serial killer. Um, a runner up was action conspiracy story. Um, and I think another part that makes this really tricky is because it's a comedy. Um, and it also is very internally driven. We have a really great character arc. Um, for Nicholas Angel. Um, and there's a lot of innovative elements of this story that really do make it hard to pin down, and it's a mashup. But at the end of the day, thrillers seem to click all the boxes. Um, and the values here are justice versus injustice. Um, the internal genre that I landed on um, is worldview education. Runner-up was a worldview maturation plot, um, and so which I will talk about again when we kind of get to wants and needs. Um, so the values here are meaning versus no meaning. And in this case, I'm saying meaning as an AKA connection. So, um, and so again, we'll kind of go into this a little bit more when we get to, um, the wants and needs about, you know, why we, why I went with education as opposed to maturation. So I'll be interested to see, I know we've got some conflicting views. So Jari, um, go ahead and introduce whoever's going to Give yeah. Side. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, I mean, before we were before we got on the call, we were talking a little bit about this. And so uh, there's a lot going on in this movie, just so you know. So, you know, there's no right or wrong answer, but it's just wonderful to see the mixing and matching and everything. So, um, well, actually, Leslie, why don't why don't you say a little bit about what the writer's intent may have been on this? Because I know you did a little digging on this and it's really interesting what, what you found out. 
Yeah, so because it has the story meets the obligatory scenes and conventions for, you know, for several different external genres, the I was looking at, you know, as editors, when we're looking at, we're reviewing an author's manuscript, we want to meet their intention. And so I was looking at interviews with the writers and their intention, it seems to be, was to create an an action story. Um, They said that they don't have action stories in Britain, particular crime action stories. And so that's what they set out to do. And they studied, they really did their homework and studied lots and lots of other films um, to, you know, to really tick all the boxes on this. And, you know, there are other reasons why I think the action is supported in part because there, um, there's no like there's no inciting crime in the beginning hook that I can see. Um, and there are a few other things. But the point is, of course, when we're working with a client, that it's important to find out what their intentions are and then see how the the story measures up against those requirements. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for that, Leslie. That was a, a great uh, bit of sleuthing. So, uh, so next up, we're going to talk about the obligatory scenes of a thriller, uh, and Kim's going to help us out with that. Okay, so in looking at the obligatory scenes, um, like I said, I really think it does, just like Leslie said, it hits all the obligatory scenes of an action, um, and then I just I made sure that it also hit the obligatory scenes of a thriller, so what Leslie said is, is totally accurate. Um, there really isn't an inciting attack at the beginning, necessarily. Um, you don't really see it. In, in our case, the inciting incident is Nicholas Angel being sent to Stanford. Um, and so, but what we do know as the story goes on is that these crimes have already taken place, and we just don't know about them. So an inciting crime indicative of a master villain, which is one of the obligatory scenes of a thriller, um, there must be victims. Certainly that is the case. Um, we have the entire town is, well, not the entire town, excuse me. The Neighborhood Watch Alliance are in, um, are in cahoots to take out anybody who's threatening their village and it's standing as, as the, you know, the best village. And so the first murder on screen doesn't take place until 38 minutes in. Um, but we do know that all these other murders in the end have actually already taken place off screen over 20 years. So that's kind of why it led me to the thriller serial killer story. Um, a speech and praise in the villain. So we have this in some different ways. Certainly it's almost as if Stanford itself, um, is the villain, um, or at least, or at least the, you know, the neighborhood watch Alliance, um, they are the, the, the villain and their speech is in praise of themselves. Uh, most often that they talk about themselves being the best village. It's all for the greater good. You know, they really do believe that what they're doing is, is for, is, is a good thing and that they're justified um, in, in all of it. And so that does come up several times and certainly towards the end um, when they're giving their great big speech um, to Nicholas Angel at that weird kind of culty um, meet up behind the castle when he really hear, finds out they're MacGuffin and what they're really doing this for. So they definitely um, praise themselves. 
the hero or protagonist becomes the victim. Um, we have this happening when the Neighborhood Watch Alliance sends, I believe his name was Michael, I called him LARP guy, because that's all he says in the, mo- in the whole movie is LARP. Um, they send him to kill Nicholas Angel in his hotel room, um, and he is able to overcome him, and then, and then he chases down, um, you know, the NWA at the castle, and then they all turn on him with weapons um, of all kinds, and there's a, there's a chase and then Danny actually stabs him in the chest for fake um, and drives him to safety. But so that that definitely is when everything switches and the NWA takes their, um, puts all of their stuff towards getting rid of Nicholas Angel. And then finally, the hero at the mercy of the villain scene. Um, This is the core event of a thriller, the moment when the hero unleashes his or her gift. um, And, when all is lost. And so this really happens to me, I think with the final showdown at the end of the movie, when basically um, Nicholas Angel is able to escape. He could go, he could leave and go back to London. Um, He could, you know, Danny saves him and says, just get out of here. There's no way you can beat this villain. Um, You know, nobody's going to believe you. And then he, you know, makes that choice to go back um, and, and basically, you know, sacrifice himself for, um, what he believes is right, which is justice and also not leaving his friend Danny to, you know, to have to be a part of that kind of world. It reminds me a lot of, um, in Silence of the Lambs when Starling has that choice to, you know, if she's going to go to Ohio or not, you know, and Sean's talked about it a lot when she's, you know, she does her laundry, she's made her decision and she's going to go because if you were to walk away, you would, you would face damnation. And, and that really feels like what would happen here if Nicholas Angel were to just go and, you know, give up on justice and give up on Danny and just go back and take care of himself. That's not who he is. And so he has to um, embrace his gift, which is being a very skilled police officer. Um, and uh, we have the Matrix-esque scene where he loads up with all of the guns from the evidence room and rides out on a horse to face down the entire, you know, NWA and all of their, all of their business. So, um, and then finally, the last one of a thriller is the false ending. There must be two endings. And in, this is a, this it definitely has two endings. So we think the story's over. Once we catch the inspector and Skinner, everything feels all wrapped up. Um, you know, they're doing paperwork, they're joking, they're laughing. It's really kind of this you know, cohesive team. Um, And then the final member of the NWA, the guy who always watched the CCTV screens, he comes out with a gun and tries to shoot Angel, but um, Danny takes the bullet for him. And there's a little scuffle until that uh, so-called deactivated mine goes off, which leads us to, you know, the final ending. So there is that final showdown that comes back. So those are all of the obligatory scenes of a thriller. Great. Thanks. Uh, Thanks, Kim. And, I know there was some debate on whether it was, you know, thriller or an action labyrinth. I know Leslie um, had some thoughts on that. So when we get to the next part, sort of the conventions of a thriller, uh, there may be, I know, a little bit of debate on uh, on exactly how that's all going to pan out. So Leslie, why don't you, you know, talk a little bit about the conventions of of a thriller? Sure. So, you know, I meant to mention this earlier that, you know, that the story actually includes a lot of 
the obligatory scenes and conventions of a Western, you know, with the exception, nice. of course, that it's... <laughs> well, he, does, it's, he isn't a horse, though. That is pretty cool, yeah, by the, the way. There's a horse, so that's awesome. There are a lot of different, you know, um, items. It's not happening in the American West, of course, but it is the West Country within England. Uh, so maybe that was a... <laughs> anyway, um, and then there's also the... Buddy love story, the boxes are ticked on that totally as well. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a very complex film. So it's sort of like a thriller Western action labyrinth where the, <laughs> the, the evil is the town, kind of like some of those old spaghetti Westerns. Yeah. They're like yeah. throwing everything in this, aren't they? It's pretty, yeah. uh, it's 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 action packed i guess would be the word i would use so it is action packed so if we're looking though at the conventions for a thriller you have a macguffin which is in this case the macguffin is the best village award um there there are red herrings that's the second convention for a thriller and that's um when to me that's when angel thinks that skinner alone is the villain and and the use of the cape and you know the hood the hooded cape and just all of the things that the that the nwa are doing to lead him astray and make him think that things are accidents and and that um the next convention is making it personal that the villain needs the hero to get his MacGuffin. Therefore he has to victimize the hero. And to me, it's, it feels like a tiny bit of a stretch, but basically they need angel to not rock the boat while the best village award panel is in town and, and make them look bad. Then the final thriller convention is the clock. And that is, to me, that's the, the best village award again. Is, it's about that. The judges are in town, and so they have to kind of keep everything tied down and looking good until they leave. If we're looking at it, from you know the conventions for an action story they're a little bit different but there is a lot of overlap simply because the thriller is part action part horror and part crime story so we have obviously hero victim villain nick angel hero victim is the village and the villain i said more specifically is inspector butterman but it also includes the NWA. The hero's object of desire is to save the victim and escape the labyrinth or defeat the villain, depending on which subgenre you are uh, focusing on for the action story. To me, I looked at the beginning hook and what was happening in the beginning hook to kind of nail that down. I mean, you could definitely say that the the middle build is about the conspiracy, but the but the beginning hook seems to be about Angel going to this place 
that's completely foreign and different to him in terms of police procedure and the way he's used to operating. So then the heroes... Oh, yeah, that's right. That, that's So that was what I said for the object is desire in terms of the convention. So the next convention is the power divide between the hero and the villain is large. So in this, the villain is anonymous, knows the town and the people, can sneak up on them, just has a wide range of resources. And Angel's usual strategy, his police professionalism, has absolutely no impact on the villain. So he's going to have to change his strategy um, in order to overcome, outwit, essentially, the villain. The speech in praise of the villain was mentioned that, you know, Danny tells Angel, it's Sanford, there's nothing you can do, who will the higher authorities believe, some loony from London or the inspector. And um, and then, you know, there are other points, too, where the NWA talk about their power um, and then the specific subject specific to the subgenre as I mentioned I see it as a labyrinth plot though the case could be made for the conspiracy and that the village itself the relationships the inner workings the way the police service works has you know creates this maze-like edifice that angel has to learn to navigate yeah it's clearly there's a lot against him I mean the, the, every every time he sort of gets gets close to something, there's something else that gets thrown in his way. So it's kind of like in Die Hard, where ah, oh, you mean I got to jump across this chasm in order to get to you know? So I can see, I can definitely see that. Does anyone um, anyone have any other comments about you know the the conventions or what's the global genre that they'd want to mention? Yeah, this is Anne. I I won't go into them in detail because I didn't get them all written up, but this story meets so many conventions of so many genres. Some of them, the official listed conventions on the cheat sheets, um, and one whose conventions it meets the most is the romantic comedy, the courtship love story. <laughs> um, I mean, it hits you mean between the buddies? Between the buddies. I mean, it is. Oh, cool! They walk right up to that line. They don't go there. It's it's tongue in cheek, <laughs> but it's but there you can you can get out that checklist and watch this movie, and it won't doesn't hit them all because it is not a romantic comedy, but it hits a bunch of them, and it's part of the movie's great charm. Yeah, yeah, no, true. That's true. It's like uh, uh, Beverly Hills Cop, kind of. You know that it's interesting because yeah, you see some of that. I mean, maybe you know, maybe all the the research that you know Leslie did in these when these guys wrote this, it's like they basically mashed up every kind of like big thing they could think of, it's, and they they pulled it off. They pulled it off. They I just did. It's say. it's impossible not to see it as pretty intentional. I mean, these are not yeah. accidental inserts into the movie. No. No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. No, that's a really great love story. Wow, we just can never um, – this stuff sometimes you just can't pin down, but it's good good discussion. So uh, any, anyone else have anything to yeah. add about that? <clears throat> it's Valerie here. I just wanted to, um, to say that absolutely this story has got a whole lot going on, going on in it, more than 
you would think at first when you just sort of think, well, it's a comedy and you you can watch it quite passively and miss a lot of things if you're not careful. And the lines can be squishy between, um, you know, is it an action movie? Is it a thriller? Is it, you know, how are we going to look at it? And I think if this was the type of story that a client brought to us and we were doing a six core question analysis on a manuscript from a client, this is where the conversation that we have with the client is really important to find out what kind of story are they trying to tell? Because from what they've given us, we could come up with, and we have come up with, all kinds of different options. And as Anne said, it's not a romantic comedy, but they've ticked off a lot of the boxes, which is just very clever uh, writing, in my opinion. So this is, I think, where we've got to really sit down and talk with the client and find out what type of story is it they want to tell so that we can, as editors, steer them in the right direction. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, yeah, if someone brought this as a first pass, it would there's a lot going on it, it it just be probably be a little distracting just to like okay hold on let's let's just you know let's get back to basics i think that's a really great point the most important thing you know when starting off on on your on your project is you know you pick the genre and then that first draft nail all the conventions and kind of you know really focus in on it and you know as time permits or as the editing process happens you know you can start adding these things but Boy, yeah, starting out, this is next level kind of storytelling, in my opinion, even though it's comedy and it's Simon Pegg and it's this whole thing. I mean, they've weaved in a ton of stuff. So, um, all right. So, uh, hey, Valerie, what about the point of view and the narrative device? Okay. So, um, with um, point of view, we're, we're struggling here with a little bit of this because we're doing films and of course as editors we will be editing um uh, novels you know either fiction or non-fiction so this one is always a challenging one for me when we do film um but i did want to um recommend you know just to get some information on this i went to Writing the Blockbuster Novel by Albert Zuckerman and this is one of the books that Stephen Pressfield had recommended um i think on his blog and Chapter six, and that is all about point of view. And he talks about the difference between uh, a point of view in a film and a point of view in a novel. And Albert Zuckerman is um, an agent, and he sold, you know, all kinds of novels from his clients. He's um, Ken Follett's agent, for example. Um, but he says he's had very, a lot of trouble selling novels that were written by people who started as screenwriters, and the primary problem is point of view and um, I won't read um, I won't read from it but I'll give you a quick summary of what he says Um, essentially he's saying that in a film the point of view is following the camera and even though uh, a good director can include shots that give the audience a flavor for what the um, for what the character is thinking and feeling We can't really know. Whereas in a novel, the beauty of a novel is that the author can go right into the character's thoughts and feelings and we get to see other characters and the setting and how the character really feels about those things. So I'm never quite sure what to do in 
in this section. When I get to do the point of view, I'm not quite sure what to put in because we're we're following the protagonist. It's it's third person. It's the camera following uh, Simon Pegg's character Nicholas Angel around. Um, but that's I think something that we can look at. Um, you know, moving forward in the in in different films to sort of have a, a look see if there's anything that would be different that we could point out. Anyway, so that's just what I wanted to say about um, the difference of point of view in a novel and in a film. Um, you know, it's, it's much richer, I think, in a novel and is, is very important in a novel and as editors is something that we need to spend a lot of time on with our clients. But in our review of films, it's kind of hard to pull out anything new or different. <laughs> yes, so true, so true. So, so Kim, um, what, what about the... I'd like uh, to make... Yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah, I no just problem. wanted to make one comment specifically about point of view on this novel, or sorry, this movie. Um, I w- it was interesting because, you know, for the most part, we do follow Nicholas Angel's um, perspective, and we know what he knows until the until that 38 minutes, um, we see the first flash of the hooded figure, um, and then we become, the audience becomes more aware of what's going on than Nicholas Angel does. So then we kind of, we start to call it, um, what is it, dramatic irony, right? When we know more than the protagonist does. Um, and so that's kind of, so once the, so once we get to that point, we start to get some, just a few little scenes um, and flashes here and there from the villain's point of view to know that, oh, these really are murders and he's right. He just, he doesn't know it yet, you know, or, or whatever. So it does start to pull those in. Um, so we don't, it's not a complete mystery to the audience where a different movie would be, you know, yeah. could, could have done that differently. And, and again, oh, that's kind of what makes it fun. You know, we see the hooded figure, it kind of brings in that horror element of, um, right. you know, of course the way they do the murders with the blood and the ax and all of that <laughs> extra, <laughs> extra gory stuff that's yeah. over the top. But anyway, so just, that's kind of one thing I noticed. I was like, Oh, this is dramatic irony because we know what's going on and Nicholas Angel doesn't. So just as a, as a as a moment for point of view great great well what what about the objects of desire and the, the wants and needs i know you, you took a look at that kim what about yeah what so do you think that is so this really ties in you know once we kind of decide what what our genres are that it really is what points us to the wants and needs um so for once certainly uh nicholas angel his biggest thing that he wants is justice he gives us this great story about when he was a kid um, and when his uncle had given him this pedal bike and he went around and he had arrested all these kids for spitting and doing all kinds of stuff. Um, and then it turns out that his uncle actually um, had, was, a, was a drug dealer and had probably bought him this, this pedal, pedal bike or pedal car um, with drug money. And so he, he just couldn't even, he's like, I never wrote it again. I just let it rust because he would not be a part of something um, that was like that because he has such a, he has such a great, um, you know, compass for, for right and wrong, for justice and injustice. And so he really dedicated himself to, you know, to being, um, you know, being the caretaker of justice and good in the world. So that's really, that's kind of his, his deep thing that he wants to be great at his job. And then specifically when we, when we start to find out that there's this injustice going on, um, even, you know, it starts at the, even when the shoplifter, um, Mr. Skinner doesn't want to press charges on the shoplifter, um, and that really bothers him that why, you know, why would we not, you know, penalize someone for doing a blatant crime? And he doesn't understand that. And so then once he realizes that, you know, something's, you know, amiss and there, these are not accidents, 
Um, you know, his whole thing is to to solve the mystery, save the victims, um, and to see justice restored. So that's really his want. Um, yeah. His need really goes to his the internal genre, which I pins down as uh, worldview education. So I really think it's that he wants to find meaning and connection in his life um, outside of work. And so I kind of went back and forth on was this a maturation plot or was this a education plot? Um, and I landed on education because um, at the beginning, you know, he, need, he his life needs meaning outside of work, um, but he knows it. So it's like if it was a maturation plot, he would almost think that, um, you know, that his life, he would be arguing that his life does have meaning because of the job. And like, right. you know, it would kind of be that, that match or, yeah, your uh, naivete, master sophistication. But in this right. case... He knows exactly what's wrong. He just doesn't know how to fix it. Um, and there's that there's that conversation with his um, with his ex at the crime scene, and she yeah. you know she says you all we're already married to the job. It's all you care about. You can't switch off, Nicholas. Until you find a person you care about more than your job, you never will. And so we yeah. know very clearly, and he knows that very clearly. Until he can find someone that he can care about more than the job, he's not going to have this connection and meaning in his life. Um, and so it goes on, um, totally. you know, so the no, fact that he understands point. this problem and how to fix it makes it feel more like education than maturation. And then um, the art continues that he does learn how to make connection. He does find new meaning, not by caring less about his job and justice, but by finding someone else who shares that with him and his friend Danny. And also eventually the rest of the squad, he kind of gets to go from being an outcast to being accepted and becoming a mentor to others and getting to share his love for the job and his love for justice. Um, and so, and then, you know, of course, Danny, you know, meets him right where he's at and he tells him, um, you know, you just need to learn to switch off and I'll show you how, and, you know, gets him to watch these movies and, you know, just is really patient with him and doesn't ask him to be different than what he is. Um, but meet somewhere he's at and totally. find connection. Yeah, totally. No, I totally. And, I mean, great. That's a great, that's a great, uh, great, I, you know, great way to put it. And I think that kind of goes into the controlling idea and theme as well. So it's a really nice tie in. Um, yeah. I know Valerie, t- Valerie took a look at that. So why, why don't you Valerie, take us through that. Th- thanks a lot, Kim, for that. That was, that was wonderful. Okay, so this is based on my reading of the global genre being a serial killer thriller, and the global value at stake, therefore, is life and death. Um, I said that the theme is, life triumphs when we put the needs of the community ahead of our own needs. And um, I just wanted to mention Steve Pressfield on his website, starting in February 2016, running through to May 2016, has a great series on theme, and I strongly, strongly recommend everyone have a look at that. It's really great. Yeah, um, we'll put that in the show notes. In the show notes, so. absolutely. So what Steve says is that the theme is represented by the hero, the villain, the title, the cast of supporting characters, the inciting incident, the climax, and the point of view. Um, it's this whole idea in the film between... Uh, you've got Angel and you've got Danny, who are both outsiders of their community, being the village of Sanford and the uh, police force. And I won't go through every one of them because, um, you know, we'll, we'll put all that in the show notes, not to worry about that. It's fairly obvious to me when I'm reading through it, the difference between the individual and the community. And um, 
so that's what I came up with for a um, for a theme. The only one that I was I really felt I was stretching was the title, <laughs> um, because it's hot fuzz. The fuzz is the is another word for the police, and a police force is, force is a brotherhood and a tight knit community that works best when everyone follows the rules and everyone's got each other's back. Um, and something is hot when it's working really well. So I thought, okay, that's. <sighs> It's a stretch. I'm willing to yeah. be told I'm wrong. But no, you know, no, no, everything, no, no. Is, <laughs> everything else to me goes. fell <laughs> everything else to me fell in place really quickly. Um so anyway, it's just sort of fun to see how often these tools that Sean and Steve uh give us, how well they work, even when you think there's no way I can apply this to um a serial killer thriller, which is um, a farce comedy of you know got a style genre of farce comedy and yet there it is so that's, that's all i have to say we'll put a bunch <laughs> more stuff in the uh, in the show notes in the show notes yeah no that's great i mean again there's a lot going on in this this film so more and it's awesome. yeah no i know and <laughs> that's why it's so much fun and that's why it, we've had a lot hard time pinning stuff down so so and why don't you take us through the beginning hook middle build and ending payoff I will, and I'm going to shorthand them pretty much here, but there's, there'll be more in the show notes. Um, the beginning hook has an inciting incident of Angel's superior sending him off to this village um, because of his moral absolutism, and that moral absolutism gives rise to the complications in the beginning hook um, because he he's black and white in his views and the unprofessionalism of his colleagues drive him crazy and the final complication of the beginning hook is he lets his annoyance compromise his professional integrity he takes a call from a citizen and and loses his temper which he tries to recover from by by taking the call seriously the call is very stupid it's about a missing swan Um, but he tries to recover his dignity and the crisis comes when he's chasing after a shoplifter who has committed a legitimate crime on camera and he spots the escaped swan and he has to decide which one should I pursue that one that has precedence or the one that's a real criminal and isn't stupid and he goes of course to pursue the real criminal which is the climax and the resolution which is negative of the beginning hook is that Skinner the owner of the shop who was victimized by the uh, the shoplifter refuses to press charges so the negative ending of the beginning hook is the village doesn't seem to value justice as Nicholas Angel does the inciting incident of the middle build takes place as as Kim has mentioned at 38 minutes into the film um, when the man who Angel and Danny have cited for speeding is is murdered along with his girlfriend it's a horrific murder and then the complications of the middle build, this middle build which belongs to the to the villain, um, who we still don't know who it is, are th- are increasingly horrific murders which the police insist on calling accidents. It gets more and more absurd their their insistence on calling them accidents. The final complication comes when. Um, Angel has arrived at a theory that Skinner is the is the murderer, but Skinner has a perfect alibi. He's on security footage in his own store during during the time. Um, the uh, cl- the crisis comes when Angel has d- d- he's he's attacked by Skinner's henchmen and discovers that the. Uh, Practically the whole village is in on this conspiracy, the entire village council, the neighborhood association. And he, he sees them acting in secret, and his crisis choice is to decide whether to confront them 
and and face the danger that they present or run away of course he confronts them because that's in his nature and the all is lost moment is that he's at the mercy of the villains and his only friend Danny apparently betrays him and the resolution which is a positive resolution turns out that the 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 apparent betrayal was actually a rescue and uh, Danny gives him gives Angel his car and Angel drives off and escapes alone along a dark highway um, the ending payoff is incited um, when Dan- Angel sees Danny's two favorite American cop movie DVDs at the truck stop, and uh, that activates his rage. And I just want to give a hat tip to Leslie here. She discovered this this um, term called infensus ex machina, or the Popeye moment, which is Nicholas's rage is finally activated. Um, he says... I've taken all I can. I'm not going to take any more. Um, and he goes, kind of hulks out. He gets that's, into his rage. That's called the Popeye moment? The Popeye moment, yeah. <laughs> Look, uh, this is such a great film. It's, Sorry, yeah, that's and, awesome. And it's, I learned something new today. It, I love me that. Me too. It was a great... Infensus Ex Machina, which uh, some... Leslie can weigh in on this, which, which writer uh, came up with that term. Uh, and so the rage prompts him to go back to... To Sanford, the complications arise as he, his he and his fellow cops who now respect him because he's a rage monster, um, are a series of gun battles, including this sort of shootout at the OK Corral effect in the village square. Um, and the final complication is that Angel has dispatched what seems to be one last conspirator. Um, the Skinner, the guy who owns the the grocery store, he turns to find Butterman, the inspector, Danny's father, holding Danny at gunpoint. And Angel either has to let let justice go and get Danny freed or call Butterman's bluff at risking Danny's life. Um, But in the climax, it's Danny who struggles away, but he can't bring himself to fire on his own father. And... uh, dad, Butterman, tries to flee in a car, but the swan, which symbolizes the MacGuffin, which is the village itself, causes him to crash into a tree. There's a very English bit of, of lore there that the swan and the perfect little village are very tied together, especially in southwestern England. Um, the resolution has has a cliche ending, a horror thrilling thriller false ending, and an epilogue, and basically the cliche ending is what you see in every cop drama where after the crime the ambulances and the the helicopters and the police cars are all circled around and people are being taken off into into the into the ambulances everybody survives it's amazingly enough and um they're filling the cops are filling out paperwork and having this wonderful um camaraderie in the in the squad room and angel has shown himself now to be part of the team and he's lightened up and he's swearing and um, and that's the false ending because then in walks the one conspirator that we forgot about, Edward Woodward, I can't remember his name in the movie, um, aiming a shotgun at Angel. And Danny leaps in front of Angel, which I viewed as a proof of love moment because <laughs> I really like the romance trope. <laughs> and um, thanks to his action, the last conspirator is taken out by an enormous plot device. Uh, but wait, there's more. There's a final, final ending in the epilogue one year later when we discover that Danny has, in fact, survived. Angel has stayed on, and they're still excessively enforcing the law in this perfect English village. That's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, wow. That's great. So um, you want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the, the tropes and standard scenes, how it's all 
kind of mixed together to make this whatever we're calling it. <laughs> this conversation <laughs> could go on for, for another hour. So, so I will, I mean, because this movie is just so packed with things. But the one thing I, I particularly wanted to call out to people is that if you would like, as a writer or an editor, to refer a writer to to this film, I mean, to, to the subject of setups and payoffs... You could not have a better example than this movie. There is not a single thing that is set up in this movie that isn't perfectly paid off um, in the end in a very parallel... If it wasn't moving so fast, you'd you'd roll your eyes at it, but it's moving so fast that every one of them works. So from the little setups of things like the escaped swan, who turns out to kind of foil the villain in the end, to the sea mine, um, the catch-up packet and the cop's notepad everything is inserted generally speaking in a pretty organic way so that it's it's a it just comes across as kind of a joke it's something funny in a funny movie but every single one of them pays off you you really couldn't do better than to study this movie for setups and payoffs yeah that's so true that's so true so anything to add you know valerie about how to innovate the content genre, you know, any yeah. anything you may want to throw in there? Yeah, I think this is a really good example of how you can um, how you can switch things up. I mean, I've identified this as a serial killer thriller, which is the same genre as Silence of the Lambs. And there's nothing funny about Silence of the Lambs in any way, shape, or form. Uh, it's quite dark. However, you know, when we're talking about story grid and, and the six core questions and all that kind of stuff, we tend to focus on the content leaf of the genre clover. And there are five leafs on the clover. So if you start mixing things up, like like Silence of the Lambs, for instance, is a serial killer thriller paired with a drama. This one is a serial killer thriller paired with a comedy. And it's a totally different film. It's got all the obligatory scenes and conventions of the serial killer thriller, um, but it's a totally different feel, uh, feel. So, you know, this is something that we can throw in there as or even as when we're writing our own stuff, we can throw it in there to sort of shake things up and start innovating uh, something that might feel tired. So true. So true. So, yeah. So if you have any of your clients that are looking to innovate, scenes and setups and payoffs have them watch hot fuzz i think that's awesome so uh that'll wrap it up for this week uh thanks so much to leslie and kim and valerie for such a great discussion on hot fuzz (laughs) i mean i'll just love that name uh we hope this discussion helps you and your clients uh write a better thriller horror action comedy story i mean there's everything in here uh, links to the Fool's Cap and other materials will be in our show notes. Uh, and we'd love to hear your comments um, and this, from the StoryGrid editing community. And next time, uh, we're going to be taking on the status admiration internal genre with a movie called Gladiator. So uh, we are definitely looking forward to that. At least I am. I love that movie. And um, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>